New challenges, but the same God. Amen. New year, new challenges, but the same God. Now, if you've been alive long enough, this may not necessarily apply to all the, the young people in the house, but if you've been alive long enough, let's say you 30 years and above, it's no secret to you that as you enter a new year, your mind has the habit of racing at the speed of light. We're all thinking about how we can change things and, and do things better than we did the year before. We're either thinking about our physical bodies, our careers, or about our families and our personal relationships. Some of us are thinking about our spiritual aspirations for this new year and how we can grow closer to God. We have all these thoughts, all these dreams and goals running through our minds, and all those thoughts aren't necessarily bad thoughts. Because we want to be good stewards of what God has given us, right? We want to become the best version of ourselves to bring glory to God through our lives. But church, have you noticed that as you think about those things, that you also have thoughts of, I thought I would be further in my life than I am right now. I thought I would be more successful. I thought I would be in better physical condition. I thought I would be further in my my walk with the Lord, and that I would know more of the Word of God. I thought I would overcome some of the things that keep wanting to pull me back to my old life. And for some of you, as you transition from one year to another, this time of the year may be a time of reflection, where you look at your life and think to yourself, why am I setting the same goals I did in 2023? In other words, why did I not achieve the goals I set last year, or the year before, or or five years ago? And that reflection may turn to despair, because let's be honest, as positive as we try to be about a new year and the possibilities it holds, we are not immune to the reality of unachieved ambition, or unmet expectations. Or even when we get what we want, only to find that it doesn't satisfy us the way that we thought it would. So with all those thoughts running through our minds, I, I guess the question that we have to ask ourselves at the beginning of 2024 is the following. Are we thinking correctly? Are we thinking Christianly? Are we thinking with the mind of Christ? But you know that Scripture tells us that when you're born again, you have the mind of Christ. Are we thinking Christianly? And I don't want to sound all super spiritual when I say words like, are we thinking Christianly? But church, the way that we think is really important. And to think Christianly is very different to the way that the world would have us think. The Bible tells us that um, as a man thinks in his heart, so is he. Which means, church, the way we think is vitally important. But again, are we thinking correctly? Are we thinking with the mind of Christ? Are we thinking Christianly? Because you see, the way we think determines the perspective we have in life, and the perspective we have in life will ultimately determine our actions or the lack thereof. It will determine the course of our lives. And so with that in mind, I want you to please turn with me in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 41. We're going to be speaking about a very familiar story in the Bible today, a story that most of you know very well. And if you grew up in church, you probably even would have heard about the story, heard it told to you 
when you were in children's church. It's the story of Joseph, the young shepherd boy, the faithful son to his father Jacob, who ends up in the land of Egypt because his brothers want to get rid of him, right? Because he has these dreams that his brothers are going to buy down to him one day. He gets sold into slavery, and he goes from the pit to Potiphar's house, and then he goes from Potiphar's house to prison, and then the next thing you know, he's elevated from prison to Pharaoh's right-hand man. And all of a sudden, he's number two in charge in the most powerful nation in the history of the world at that time. And this is the way we read the story. This is the way that we've heard it being taught time and time again. And this is the way that we tell it to our children. We say it is a story about a young man who was faithful, and because he was faithful, God blessed him. And because God blessed him, he now has power, he has position, and he has possessions. That's how most of us know the story, am I right? But church, what if I told you that this was not actually the point of Joseph's story and the purpose of Joseph's life? In fact, what if I told you that if we were thinking with the mind of Christ, that we would have a completely different perspective on the story? Now, you may be thinking, Pastor, I think you're going down a rabbit hole that you can't come back from this morning. Or maybe you're thinking... Please don't ruin my favorite story in the Bible. <laughs> if that's you, just hang in for a few minutes and allow me to show you what I'm speaking about because there is some really good stuff here. Now before we start reading, let me give you some more background about Joseph's story that's important for where we're going. If you read Joseph's story, you will find that there are three pairs of dreams in Joseph's life. Firstly, there's this pair of dreams that he shares with his brothers that doesn't go so well because even though he's rightly interpreting these dreams, his brothers hate him and despise him even more. They already despise him because he's the favorite son and he gets this special robe from his father. And then there's these dreams where they're all going to bow down to him one day. And so when they get the opportunity, they decide in their jealousy that they are going to to kill him, but they don't. Instead, they sell him into slavery. Secondly, when he's in prison, there's another pair of dreams that he interprets for two different servants of Pharaoh. He tells them that one of them is going to die and the other one of them is going to get their job back, and it happens as he said it would. And then thirdly, Pharaoh has two dreams and he cannot interpret these dreams himself and Pharaoh's servant remembers the one in prison who can interpret dreams. So Joseph comes and interprets the dreams correctly. The dreams about the healthy corn and the sick corn. The dreams about the healthy cows and the sick cows. And how the sick corn eats the healthy corn and how the sick cows eat the healthy cows. Pharaoh has absolutely no clue what this all means. But Joseph says, no problem, I'll tell you what this means. It means that there's going to be a severe famine in the land. There's going to be seven years of plenty, and then there's going to be seven years of severe famine. And so, Pharaoh, what you need to do is you need to store up during those seven years of plenty, and then there's going to be plenty so that you can have enough grain during the seven years of famine. And that's where we'll pick it up here in Genesis chapter 41 and verse 37. And church, before you look down at your Bibles or we read on the screens, remember, we're reading it from a different perspective today, okay? 
And you're going to see in a little while what the real point of the story is, and you'll see how ironic it really is. So beginning in verse 37, it says, This proposal pleased Pharaoh and all his servants. And Pharaoh said to his servants, Can we find a man like this in whom is the Spirit of God? Stop there for a moment. What's ironic here, church, get this, is that his brothers hate him because God gives him some dreams. He interprets the dreams correctly, which means that he's actually given his brothers the word of God, and they not only don't believe him, but they hate him because of the word that comes. And ironically, he now stands before a pagan king. He stands before Pharaoh, and Pharaoh says, well, I believe you. And just by the way, it's not a good thing that the covenant people of God don't believe God's messenger. That's a problem. Verse 39, then Pharaoh said to Joseph, since God has shown you all of this, he's acknowledging this supernatural event. He says, there is none so discerning and wise as you are. You shall be over my house and all my people shall order themselves as you command. Only as regards the throne will I be greater than you. Church, do you know that every house that Joseph serves, that house prospers? And you would think that's a good thing, right? It is a good thing. But in this context, it's a problem and it's ironic because whose house is Joseph supposed to be prospering? Jacob's house. So when we read Pharaoh saying, you shall be over my house, the perspective we should have, the thinking we should have is wrong house. This is not a good thing, and this is not a blessing upon Joseph's life. You're still not convinced? There's more. Verse 41, And Pharaoh said to Joseph, See, I have set you over all the land of Egypt. Now, what land is Joseph supposed to be in? He's supposed to be in Canaan. He's supposed to be in the land of promise. And just a bit of trivia for you this morning, in the overall story of the Bible, if Canaan is the land of promise, what is the complete theological opposite of the land of Canaan? Egypt, right? And you know what that means for Joseph? That means wrong house, wrong land. I don't know about you, but I think Moses is trying to say that this is not a good thing. But you know what? Let's keep reading. Verse 42, then Pharaoh took his signet ring from his hand and put it on Joseph's hand and clothed him in garments of fine linen and put a gold chain about his neck. For those of you who have read the story before, how was Joseph identified at the beginning of the story? By this robe that his father puts around him, which then means church is in the wrong house, is in the wrong land, he's wearing the wrong robe. And he now essentially has the wrong father. This is not turning out well for Joseph. And I think if we are reading this honestly, we cannot be saying Moses is trying to lead us to the conclusion that this is a blessing. But if you're still not convinced, let's keep reading. Verse 43, and he made him ride in his second chariot. And they called out before him, bow the knee. Thus he set him over all the land of Egypt. This is so interesting for me, you know, because what we find here is another great irony. 
His brothers would rather kill him than bow the knee to him. Instead, they sell him into slavery. But the pagan king says, bow the knee, and the Egyptians gladly do it. It carries on in verse 44 by saying, Moreover, Pharaoh said to Joseph, I am Pharaoh. And without your consent, Joseph, no one shall lift up hand or foot in all the land of Egypt. And Pharaoh called Joseph's name Zaphonath Paniah. And he gave him in marriage Asenath, the daughter of Potiphar, priest of On. So Joseph went out over the land of Egypt. Now, church, I think for all of us, you know, we may have read this story before and thought, wow, this guy, Joseph, he's living the dream. He's in the most powerful country in the world. He's second in charge. He's been given authority over all the land. He can do whatever he wants, and now he's been blessed with a wife. But hang on a moment. Get the right perspective here. He's in the wrong house. He's in the wrong land. He's wearing the wrong robe. He's now under the wrong father. And if that weren't enough, a pagan king now gives him a new name and marries him off to the daughter of a priest who worships a pagan god. And listen, for, for someone like Joseph, it was not a blessing to receive a pagan name. Why? Because, because it is an insult to the chosen people of God and an insult to the God of the chosen people. It was an insult to take their covenant names to, that point to their relationship with God Almighty and give them pagan names that point to their relationship with pagan gods. And if we're telling the story, this specific story in the Bible, in the perspective that, the perspective that faithfulness leads to blessing, what we're actually saying is if you're faithful, you too can end up in the wrong land, right? In the wrong house with the wrong father, with the wrong robes, with the wrong name, and the wrong wife. Amen, hallelujah, praise the Lord. <laughs> but you see, church, this is not the point of the story. This is not the perspective of someone who is thinking with the mind of Christ. Now, you may be sitting there at this point and saying, Pastor, you know what, that's a really good exegesis of this passage of Scripture. But how does this apply to my life? And what does this really mean for me as I go into 2024? Well, I want to ask you to hang in for a few more minutes, and I'm trusting that you will really get the point the author of this story is trying to make. Will you hang in with me? Let's keep reading. Verse 46. Joseph was 30 years old when he entered the service of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. And Joseph went out from the presence of Pharaoh and went through all the land of Egypt. During the seven plentiful years, the earth produced abundantly. And he gathered up all the food these seven years, which occurred in the land of Egypt, and put the food in the cities. He put in every city the food from the fields around it. And Joseph stored up the grain in great abundance, like the sand of the sea, until he ceased to measure it, for it could not be measured. By the way, when God made the promise to Abraham about his offspring, what did he say? He said they would be like the sand of the seashore. There's a point being made here. Verse 50, before the year of famine came, two sons were born to Joseph. 
Asenath, the daughter of Potiphar, a priest of On, bore them to him. Joseph called the name of the firstborn Manasseh, for he said, God has made me forget all my hardship and all my father's house. The name of the second he called Ephraim, for God has made me fruitful in the land of my affliction. First of all, what's important to note here, church, is that Joseph gives his same sons Hebrew names, not Egyptian names. He gave them covenantal names, which means that Joseph is identifying with God's covenant people. Very important thing to note. But not just that they're specifically Hebrew names, but perhaps even more importantly, the meaning of these Hebrew names. The first son's name is Manasseh, and the translation that we get here for that name in the Bible is, For God has made me forget all my hardship and all my father's house. Translated correctly, if you go and study that name, the name Manasseh means God hath made me to forget. Or to translate it for everyday purposes, the name Manasseh essentially means God has helped me to let the past go. And you know, church, this is really interesting to me because, you know, if I would think about this from a, a worldly perspective, and if I could have an imaginary dialogue with with Joseph, it would go something like this. I would say, hey, Zephanath Benaiah, I heard you've had two sons. Congratulations, my friend. This is a great blessing in your life. I mean, it, it really looks like you're living the dream. Well done. Just look how far you've come. You were born this little farmer boy, this shepherd boy from the middle of nowhere. But now, you're here in the most powerful nation that the world has ever seen. You're number two in command. You've got a wife. You've got two children. And you ride around in the best, the second best chariot in all the, in all the land. Just look at you. Wow. You know what? I aspire to become just like you. But Zephaneth Benaiah, I don't want to be rude. But listen, your boys' names, they don't sound like Egyptian names. They sound like, like Hebrew names. What's up with that? Joseph replies and says, well, they are Hebrew names because I am Hebrew. And because Pharaoh might be able to change my name, but he doesn't get to name my sons. And my sons are children of the covenant just like me. Wait, wait, wait. Zephaneth Paniah. Hang on a minute. Why would you give your children names after the Hebrew people who abandoned you? You want to know why? Because I've let my past go. Didn't they sell you into slavery? Didn't they forsake you? Yes. But I've let my past go. They lied about you. They never came to find you. For all they know, you could be dead. I know. You're absolutely right. But I've let my past go. Joseph chose to be identified with the covenant people of God as opposed to being identified with the enemies of God. He chose to think about his life through the lens or perspective of God's covenantal promises and not through the lens or perspective of his past pain. He let his past go. And listen, some of us here today, as we face a brand new year, need a Manasseh. Amen? 
Some of us here are going through a Joseph experience, but we need to adopt a Manasseh mindset. There are some of us here who are holding on to things right now and identifying ourselves not as chosen and redeemed people of the covenant, but as damaged goods from our past. And you need a Manasseh. You need to let your past go. You may say, well, pastor, you don't know the issues I have. I have problems. I have trust issues. I have, you know, I don't have the time to tell you all of what I'm dealing with. Can I tell you something? Manasseh. That's not who you are in Christ Jesus. Well, you don't know my past. I've been hurt. I've been wounded in the past. I've been mistreated. I've been dealt one bad hand after another. Manasseh. That's not who you are. Your circumstances don't define you. The blood of Jesus can cover that. Let your past go. Tell the person next to you, Manasseh. Let the past go. Now, if you think the name of his first son was something really special, let's take a look at the name of Joseph's second-born son. And let's go back to that imaginary role play. So Zephanath Paniah, what is the meaning of your second-born son's name? I know they're Jewish names. What's the meaning? Well, his name is Ephraim, and it means, for God has made me fruitful in the land of my affliction. Wait, 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 what was that? God has made me, God has made me fruitful in the land of my affliction. Just hang on a second, Zephanath Benai. Are you telling me that this place where you prospered and you've succeeded and received blessing after blessing is the land of your affliction? Because I'm confused right now. I thought the land of your affliction would be the place where they hated you, where they wanted to murder you. I thought it would be the place where they put you in a pit so that you could be sold into slavery. Wouldn't that be the land of your affliction? That's not the land of my affliction. This is the land of my affliction. Why? Can I tell you why? Because I am part of the covenant people of God, and the place for me is to be in the land of the covenant. I don't care how wealthy this land appears to be or how successful I seem to be. There is no wealth and no success like being in the presence of my God. Which means that anything outside of his presence is the land of my affliction. You know, church, there are a lot of South Africans who are immigrating to different countries around the world for various different reasons, right? And most of them are doing it in the hope of a more peaceful, a more stable, and a more successful life. And I'm not here today to criticize those people or to convince them otherwise, but what I can tell you this morning is that no matter where you go, no matter where you lay your head, that place is still the land of your affliction. Why? Because this is not our home. This is not as good as it gets. And our best day here pales in, con in comparison to any day in glory. Amen? We are citizens of the New Jerusalem. And in case you forgot, this is not the New Jerusalem. And until then, wherever we live is the land of our affliction. But we need to be very careful with this, this truth, right? 
And we need to have the right perspective in thinking about this because, yes, this is the land of my affliction. But guess what? I'm still doing everything in my power to be a blessing to this land. Why? Because it's where God has me right now. Church, heaven is our home. But in the meantime, we stand up and man our post and advance the kingdom of God wherever the Lord has called us to be. Amen, somebody. So church, I think by now you're starting to see the real meaning of the story, right? I think by now you've had a, you may have a different perspective that it's not about faithfulness that leads to blessing. I think you're starting to see the essence of what Moses is trying to convey here, but what if I told you that we still haven't gotten to the real point of the story? Can I tell you the, the point of the story? Should we do a part two rather? I'm just joking. Now, this last portion of the story probably deserves the emphasis of an entire sermon, but let me try and summarize it for you. If you move over to Genesis chapter 45, what you have happening is the fulfillment of Joseph's interpretation of Pharaoh's dreams. The seven years of plenty have come and gone, and they are now in the period of seven years of severe famine. Joseph's brothers come to him in desperation, not knowing it is their brother, they need, to, they need food to take back home. And after a number of interactions with his brothers, and after testing them several times, he reveals himself to his brothers. He breaks down in tears, and he says this to them in verse, or chapter 45, verse 4. He says, come near to me, please. And they came near. And he said, I am your brother Joseph, whom you sold into Egypt. And now, do not be distressed or angry with yourselves because you sold me here. Can you see that mindset? Why? For God sent me before you to preserve life. For the famine has been in the land these two years, and there are yet five years in which there will be neither plowing nor harvest. And God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant on earth and to keep alive for you many survivors. So it was not you who sent me here, but God. But God. So church, as we are approaching the real meaning of the story, why was Joseph sent to Egypt? Was it to bless him? Was it to, to make him prosper? Was it to make him famous? Now he was sent there to preserve a remnant. Because listen, who was one of Joseph's brothers? Which was one of the the, the really important of this, his brothers, of the remnant to preserve. There's a certain brother in the story by the name of Judah. There's a certain seed that is preserved. And down the line, in the tribe of Judah, there is this young man named David, many generations down the line, who goes into the valley and defeats Israel's enemy on behalf of all of God's covenant people which means that the seed is preserved yet again until a greater David is born. The lion of the tribe of Judah, born through the seed of David, right? He is born and he does what every other preserved generation did in one single act. He offers a, himself as a substitutionary atoning sacrifice for the sons whom his father loves, for the remnant. 
And then through dying a death that they deserved, he goes into the great valley and defeats the enemy on behalf of all those who are in him by faith. And you see, church, Joseph didn't go to Egypt so that we could tell our congregations or tell our children, just be faithful and you'll be blessed. And you'll be rich and you'll be famous. Joseph went to Egypt so that Judah, the promised seed, wouldn't starve to death. So that David, the promised seed, could be born and become king. So that Jesus, the promised seed, could save his people and become our king of kings and our Lord of lords. Amen. Church, that's the point of the story of Joseph. It's the heart of the gospel. And it shows us the providence of God. And you know, that's, that is amazing news for you and me. Because when we look at God's providence and we realize that God can use a famine, and we realize that God can use slavery and imprisonment, you know, in our lives, we may at times be tempted to look at similar situations and say, God, you've forgotten me. You've forsaken me. You've abandoned me. And providence says, don't you dare think like that because you don't see the end of the picture. You're in the pit so that I can save you. You're going to be a slave to Potiphar so that I can save you. You're going to prison so that I can save you. You're going to Egypt so that I can save you. Because providentially, every last bit of the story has been necessary for me to deliver you from the land of your affliction. And so church, as we enter a brand new year, as we take on 2024, let us have a different perspective on life. Let us think with the mind of Christ. Let us think Christianly about our purpose. Because you see, it's God's providence that gives us hope in the midst of our brightest and our darkest days. It's His providence that says, no, this is not the new Jerusalem. No, this is not as good as it gets. But yes, this is where I want you right now. And church, I don't know what each and every one of you are dealing with in your life at the start of a new year. But one thing I do know is that God saves His people. God delivers His people. And my encouragement to you as you enter this new year is to flee to Christ. Put your faith in Him. Change your perspective if necessary. And remind yourself of God's providence. Because get this, church, if God did all of what we've been speaking about today in order to rescue the remnant whom He loves, how much more can we trust Him in the midst of life challenges? And when God turns things around, and I believe He will, when He turns these things around and there are answered prayers, and we can say, remember back in those days where things were so difficult and where times were so challenging, and when it felt so painful when God was building my character. And now things are just so wonderful. Don't forget, wherever you are in that moment, that's still the land of your affliction, and we're not yet home. The challenge to you and me in 2024 is to make this place as much like home as possible. Which is exactly what Joseph did in Egypt, where even in the little things like the naming of his sons and his constant affiliation to the God of the covenant, he would not allow his circumstances to define him. 
And I would submit to you this morning that this is what it means to have the right perspective and to think Christianly. Let's pray. Father God, as we close this time of worship and reflection, we come before you with hearts full of gratitude and a renewed perspective. We thank you for the powerful message we have heard in your word today, reminding us that your providence is always at work in our lives, even when we face challenges and difficulties. Lord, as we enter this new year, help us to embrace the truth that our faithfulness does not always lead to immediate earthly blessings, but it does ultimately lead to your divine plan and purpose. Just as Joseph's journey took him through trials and tribulations, it was all part of your sovereign plan to fulfill your promises. We pray, Lord, that you would give us the grace to let go of the past. Just as Joseph named his son Manasseh, signifying that you help us forget our hardships and that you give us the ability to move forward in faith. May we release the burdens of our past mistakes and experiences knowing that you have a greater purpose for our lives. And like Joseph's second son, Ephraim, who was named to acknowledge that you make us fruitful even in the land of our affliction, we ask that you help us thrive and bear fruit in the midst of life's challenges. Lord, let us remember that this world is not our final destination, but a temporary dwelling place until we reach our eternal home with you. Lord, we trust in your providence, knowing that you are working all things for our good. Give us the strength and wisdom to navigate the year ahead with a Christian perspective, always seeking to honor and glorify you in all that we do. We commit this new year into your hands trusting that you will guide us, protect us, and use us for your divine purposes. And may our lives be a testimony to your faithfulness and to your saving grace. We pray this in Jesus' name, and all God's people said amen and amen. Amen.